Have you ever met one of those people who just can't be stopped? It's like they're unstoppable. Yeah, I have. Me too. What's their mystique? Nothing stops these people. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso. You're about to meet some of the most amazing people. They've accomplished their goals despite insurmountable odds. They beat adversity, physical hardship, and traumatic events, and emerged triumphantly. They're people just like you and me, and they're winners. Are you unstoppable? Here's Frankie to show you how. Well, hello there, and welcome to Mission Unstoppable Radio. How are you guys doing today? <laughs> We're having one of those days, but uh, let me introduce you to my wonderful guest. Her name is Rachel braun Sherl, and she's a vagipreneur, a woman's advocate, an innovator, business strategist, market maker in the multi-billion dollar global women's sexual health subsector. She's a co-founder and managing partner of Spark Solutions for Growth and strategic partner for leading pharma, beauty, and consumer health companies, including Johnson & Johnson, Allergan, Pfizer, Bayer, Merck, and Church and & Dwight, and many startups. Rachel is the author of Orgasmic Leadership, uh-huh. Profiting from the coming surge in female health and wellness in 2015, she was recognized as one of the best 50 women in business by NJ Biz. She's a 2015 recipient of Smart CEOs Bravo Awards, honoring top female CEOs, and she's been honored as one of JWI's 10 women to watch. She's served on numerous boards, including various for-profit, and serves on the board of the Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Duke University. So she's a smart cookie. <laughs> Welcome, Rachel. How Thank you? you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, I, I started to read your book, Orgasmic Leadership, and I had to laugh because on the surface, you don't know this, but we're very similar. In the 90s, I was the condom queen. I had a, a company um, that did customized condom packaging, and I started with the university markets, and, and I worked you know, with public health to do the AIDS, all that AIDS stuff. And I go, oh my God, she, like if she, we knew each other in the 90s, it would have been, you know, we would have branched Wow, out. that's amazing. The, yeah, I got into the female condom and all that. And I was really loving that, you know, but I thought, nah, it's just too expensive for people in Africa to, you know, women to look after their sexual health with something that was $5 compared to something that was 10 cents, right? But you know all well, about luckily that. we've made a lot of progress in the Haven't female condom market since then. Yeah, yeah. So this is Mission Unstoppable, and I like to start with, you know, where people came from, because they didn't just pop out unstoppable. Well, maybe you did. I don't know. But <laughs> let's, let's go back to the little girl who thought she might be a firefighter ballerina or something of that ilk. <laughs> so where did you grow up? Who are you? I grew you? up in, I was born in Michigan. Uh, and I don't seem very Midwestern, people tell me. And I was raised in New Jersey and, you know, was athletic and did a hundred different sports and um, was into school, really liked it. Uh, went to college. I went to Duke University undergrad where I studied psychology and human development, which was really the integration of sociology, psychology, and physiology. Uh, went to work at a company which was a large PR firm at the time. And that started my relationship with Johnson and Johnson. They were my first client. And I basically worked with her for J and J from 1987 to let's say 2014. So uh, I then went to graduate school of business at Stanford, which I loved and went to Johnson and Johnson and worked on the Tylenol business. And when I say that J and J was foundational to me, there are so many of the relationships that I've carried with me into my consulting business. Now, 20 plus years later, many of those people who are now at other places, I met them originally through my relationships at J&J. So today in 2018, I have three clients that I, at least three that I've been working with for decades, even as they move from place to place. So that training and those relationships have been critical as our relationships, um, that I've built in general are absolutely fundamental to anything that I've been able to accomplish. Um, in, I've been an entrepreneur. I call myself an accidental entrepreneur because when I came out of school, I thought I was going to run a division of J&J. &J. Uh, and for a bunch of reasons, I, I left J&J &J and, and became an entrepreneur. In large, well, I'm sorry. And then became a JJ. <laughs> I became a JJpreneur. Um, 
in large part because I wanted to be in charge of my financial future. I had gone immediately to a boutique that worked that our clients were J and J and you know, I was traveling constantly, which was part of the job. And I said, if I'm going to work this hard, I want to work for myself. So I've been uh, my own boss for men, much of the last 25 years in 2008. So my business partner, Mary and I, she came from um, Richardson Vicks and then, then Procter and Gamble. So we met uh, on the job. When I first met her, I said, I'd really like to work at a place where someone like this works. And we immediately became sort of um, intellectually engaged with one another. And then I've been business partners for over 20 years. Fantastic. In any case, in two, so we built our consulting practice, really, as you mentioned, focused on strategy and marketing and really growing businesses. How do you find new customers? How do you expand your offerings? How do you reposition? Can you expand globally? Are there new product opportunities? Really all focused on how do you generate more transactions? How do you get more people to buy what you're selling? So it's a very pragmatic approach uh, to strategy. And we did that for a long time. And in 2008, we were approached by a venture capitalist who said, here's this company. I'm not interested in investing because it doesn't meet my investment criteria. Maybe you and Mary want to do some consulting. So long story short, instead of consulting, we bought the asset um, in, in 2008. And it was a product that improved arousal, desire, and satisfaction for women of all ages and life stages, topically applied, clinically proven, no drug-drug interactions. And that's when we became entrepreneurs. And so let me stop you there for a second. Let me stop you. This was in 2008? Yeah. Okay. So what was the climate in 2008 for women's? What was on the market then? So there had been a bunch of clinical programs, all of which had shut down. There really wasn't much on the market or in development because a lot of, as I said, you know, so Procter & Gamble had gotten a product approved in Europe, but they couldn't get it approved here. There had been a lot of investment that over, you know, from 2008, probably till 2012, a lot of those programs, and when I say programs, money was going in to support their clinical development, fell away. What was critical in 2008 is that the bottom was falling out of the financial market. Shearson Lehman was going bankrupt. Other large companies were going bankrupt. People were losing their jobs. And Mary and I um, had to Silicon Valley to raise money talking about vaginas. So I would say the category of female health, of finding products and services that help women with their reproductive and sexual health needs was a conversation that even today, the majority of people are not comfortable having. Add to that, that it was a really tough financial period. When we went to Silicon Valley, they considered us first-time entrepreneurs because we had never raised money before, but we had been running the business together for over a decade. So was there, was there Lovecraft out? Was there like, what stores were there? Were there toy stores? And I guess there were in 2000. Yeah, there were, there were a number of toy stores. There were some websites, but when you're looking at the new developments, a couple of things, there was nothing about talking to women in a different, more respectable, respectful, approachable way. There was no one speaking to women who were menstruating in a way that made sense to them. There were not many products on the, on the market. So today there are you know, maybe half a dozen products that are devices working on symptoms for incontinence. There are all these new companies with better distribution models that are more personalized for menstruation. There was none of this going on and there right. was very stilted, if any, conversation. Now, I wanna separate female satisfaction. First yeah. of all, there's this systemic discomfort, at least in our country, uh, with female satisfaction. And I always point to this one article that I will never forget. It was the cover of the New York Times Magazine section. So, you know, a respected, even a respected journalistic outlet. And the cover story said, unexcited, is there a pill for that? And they were talking about a couple of the products that were still in development, clinically in development. And Fast and forward. by the way, you can say whatever you want on this show. I'm sorry? You can say whatever you want, okay. whatever language you want to use. Right. No, no, it wasn't that. It was, you yeah. know, now there are, in 2008, there had been a decline of the number of programs, and we've started to ramp up over the past couple of years. But in any case, they talked about how when you're doing a clinical program, the objective is to say, does this product work in a way that is statistically meaningful relative to the placebo? And one of the things they said that was shocking is that female sexual satisfaction, certainly, or improving desire, 
was one of those few areas where they were concerned that our product worked too well, <laughs> lest there be, air quotes, sex craze binges of infidelity. And I remember writing an article because I, I couldn't even believe it. Oh that, God. you know, is that the concern? If a woman's arousal or desires improve, she'll be running through the streets like a woman in heat. Are we not in a panic? We don't seem to be in a panic that there are men running around wielding four-hour erections. And what it really pointed out is something that I've concentrated on for a long time as a vagipreneur, which is the language around female sexuality. How can we have a conversation if we don't have a language? So for 20 years at this point, we've been inundated with the language of Viagra La Trencialis, bigger, longer, stronger, four-hour erections. And from speaking to thousands of women, both in female sexual health businesses and a variety of others over you know, a 20-plus sure. long career, they don't think of sex as a performance activity. So that language just doesn't apply. And when yeah. we started the business, you could, if you were looking for sexual health information, you either got porn or disease. There was really no place in the middle. And I'm happy to say over the past 10 years with hopefully some of our efforts and lots of other people in the space, we are making progress. We are absolutely making progress in terms of our comfort with the language, the number of options that are available, the number of companies that are being funded, and just the general force of this segment, whether you call it femtech or sex tech, in terms of bringing solutions to women. You know, they used to, Sears Catalog used to sell, they used to sell um, a product for, you know, to help with women's hysteria. The doctors would tell them. Well, that's how the vibrator was developed. The vibrator was developed. Treatment for hysteria. Yeah, because of course, we couldn't just enjoy something. We were hysterical. Right. You had to be hysterical. (laughs) And And and, by the way, that, that translation oftentimes does make people more comfortable. I'm solving a problem. You know, God forbid I'm actually doing something that enhances her experience. You know, there's so many fun moments in this business and very hard, many hard moments. But one of my favorite ones is when we were running the first company in this space, everybody had to take some time on the consumer line, you know, so that we could customer service because everyone needed to be connected and understand what was the experience of the people buying and using our product and and how to make sure that they were satisfied. No pun intended, but yeah, yeah. So one day I pick up the phone. It was my day to, to man the phones. And I said, this is Rachel. How can I help you? And a woman is literally screaming, not at me, but into the phone. You know, this stuff really works. Thank you, God. <laughs> so, you know, when I started this particular business, my kids were little. And so they would cry at the window when I would leave. And I would say after that, you know, mommy's going out into the world to do God's work now. Yeah, that's so funny. But it really, this category and I've seen this with all the entrepreneurs that I've introduced and interviewed or worked with in this space, as well as my own experience, the opportunity to really transform a part of someone's life is really, really exciting. You're always looking for an emotionally engaging category if you're a marketer or a business builder, and I'd be hard-pressed to find something that's more emotionally engaging for people uh, than women's sexual and reproductive health. And, and what's interesting is it really, it just changes every decade for us. I mean, our bodies change everything. Every stage is so different. We need something different all the time. And it's a really great point. One of the, uh, one of the things I tried to do in the book and, and in the way of background, I interviewed over three dozen entrepreneurs, vagipreneurs, healthcare practitioners, and academics to share my story, but also learn from people who have been in the same space. It's difficult for women to raise money it's even more difficult to raise money in female sexual health. You know, what were some of the tools and techniques people were using to capitalize on some business trends, using technology, artificial intelligence, new materials that could be more absorbent for menstruation or incontinence, creative solutions to existing problems. Um, And what became clear was how unbelievably creative and passionate and thoughtful people are about being in this space. And one of the things that's amazing is it's the most collaborative category I've ever worked in. And I've worked on women from the tops of their heads to the tips of their toes, but there is a sense um, and there are organizations supporting this idea that a rising tide raises all boats. And if we get more comfortable talking about this stuff, um, 
that's better for everybody. And going back to your concept of our bodies change at every stage, one of the things that's really fascinating about people building companies now is they are starting to look at women as whole people. So instead of being looked at by a product manufacturing company, you're a menstruating woman, you're a woman trying to get pregnant, you're a woman struggling with infertility, you're a woman who has incontinence, you're a woman entering menopause, they start to think of her entire sort of journey. And so there are businesses that are being developed that say, what's similar about the drop in hormones that a woman experiences after she gives birth and you know, could potentially yeah. result in her having some incontinence symptoms with the drop in estrogen she experiences in menopause? Are there similarities? Can we have an understanding, clear enough understanding of her physiology and all the systems that interact to say, well, here's a device that could work in both cases because at its, fun, at, at its core, we're working on strengthening pelvic floor muscles. So this idea that you said, I love the, the expression that you use, looking at the whole woman and not just she's a product user in a stage of life. The conversations that a lot of these amazing entrepreneurs are having and these brands that they're building are having with their customers is really much more personal. And it's not that in the end they're not delivering products or services. There are companies selling menstruation products. There are companies selling condoms. There are companies selling lubricants. The conversation about her needs is entirely different, better, broader, more personal, and built on you know everything at its core now is artificial intelligence an understanding of her behavior and her needs and her cycles so that you can better offer solutions. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was reading, um, I, I looked up the Zester product online uh-huh. and, and, and it was at Walmart and I looked at the ingredient and it said um, uh, that it was safe for ingestion. And I remember originally when I brought, when I got into the condom market and the flavored condoms and that, you know, because it's a medical device, it has to go through Health right. Canada. I'm, I'm in Canada. I had to go through Health Canada. But when I asked, did it go into testing for, you know, like FDA kind of like for food and drug? Uh, no, nobody had ever looked at that. So I said, it's a medical device and, and people are going, you know, to put their mouths on it. Let's be honest. Um, but nobody had tested it, you know, for its ingestion. Is it clean? Is it safe? Is it whatever? And like people always look at me like I'm some kind of freak or something like well, because I'm paranoid around food anyway. But, you know, it was a thing like, wow, you guys don't even, I'm sure I knew where it was being, you know. And, and part of that, quite honestly, is understanding the range of activities that people are would yeah. engage in in the bedroom and not just, here's a condom, this is all you need to know, you just put this on and that's the end of the conversation. All the conversations now, certainly the ones that I'm in and so many of these entrepreneurs are having, are much more nuanced. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and part of my, I don't know if it was my, my, a lot of my clients were, you know, were gay men and, and man line was a client and, and cause I did third party advertising with them and, and different kinds of, um, so you were a vagipreneur before there was a word. I was. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's why I loved it so much. When I read your, your story, I'm like, Oh yeah, I wish I'd known you then. It would have been like huge <laughs> you know, where I got, where I got stuck. My kids were tearing apart condoms where I got stuck was when I did um, pride day. And because it was a medical device, I felt like it had to be hand done. And, and I gave it out to different groups of people to put together the, the, our matchbooks, right? But they were very slow and I was really fast. And I thought, oh my God, we've got like a million to put together. And I thought, oh, it can't be automated. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I can't do anymore. But yeah, I mean, it was a wonderful idea and it was really good while it lasted. But- One of the things that's amazing in terms of the conversation that's happening in the condom market now is certainly for some of these startups is really the around the idea of you should be in charge of your sexual health to women. And it's not that that hasn't been part of the conversation, uh, but it's much more so it's much more direct. It's much more personal. You know, there are companies working on many people are surprised to know that it's a regulation that you have to list all the ingredients that are on a cereal box, but you do not have to list all the ingredients that are in a tampon or in something that is inserted vaginally. And so many of the companies, um, Sustain and Lola, to name a few, are really focused on the ingredients yeah. in their products and what's in their tampons and what, how their condoms are made. And there's much more awareness of her sexual health, the impact on the environment, 
what her needs are, it's way more complex, as you know, than, oh, she menstruates once, once a month. You know, first of all, that doesn't apply to everybody. Yeah, I mean, I remember that they found pieces of wood in the tampon. They found all kinds of oh, you know, crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Yeah. And add to that, in many, many states, I believe um, it's only in four states that this isn't an issue, that tampons are taxed as a luxury item. And as I always say, for any woman who's ever used a tampon, that is not a luxurious experience. And it's just funny when you so dig deep how many systemic, cultural, regulatory questions have not been addressed until now. You know, I, I, as you said that, taxable items, I, it made me think, even in women's clothing, when our, when our clothes get tailored, they, they, they charge us. When a men's, at a men's store, they don't. So it's just, you know, it is systemic all the way down the line that women don't matter. I mean, we saw it this week, last week, you know, during Kavanaugh, women don't matter. And, and that's the message that we're getting, but women are standing up for themselves. Women are, you know, taking control of their bodies. And I think at some point we kind of get tired of having to like, why do I have to look after everything? You know, why don't you go get, you know, a vasectomy? Why don't you look after, you know, putting something, a jacket on your, on your, you know, penis? Why don't you do it because I get tired sometimes. Yeah. To- I mean, there is a fair amount of work in the male contraception category, for sure. There are <laughs> a bunch of clinical programs. Um, you know, I think it's just the nature of how we live. And one of the things I say to women when I'm, you know, lecturing about entrepreneurship or speaking on leadership is the first thing is you have to be your own advocate. Yeah. So yeah, it might get tiring, but if you're not going to be your own advocate, who's going to do it for you? Yeah. So when I go into companies and they say, well, you've had a lot of difficult conversations with venture capitalists and um, with consumers and starting a difficult conversation, you know, there are three things that I say. First of all is you have to be prepared. Know your story, know what you're selling, know what's different, know why it matters, know why it could replace something else. And the second is be your own advocate. Don't let yourself get interrupted. Don't let someone else take credit for your ideas. Yeah. But make sure that you are grounded in an understanding of your business that no one could ever shake that. And then the third piece besides knowing your business and being your own advocate is I say to people who ask, well, how can I help as a man or as a leader? And I say, look for opportunities that are nuanced. Make sure people are not being interrupted. You know, don't have an experience where you come up with an idea and then John says it six minutes later and we say, John, what a brilliant idea when everybody in the room knows it was your idea. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I understand the concept that it gets tiring, but I yeah. sort of feel like I'd rather be in charge of how I'm treated than have yeah. somebody else. Oh, no, no, no. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do, when you're speaking to women who are introducing a product like Zestra into their into their diet. Let's say, um, is there a conversation that has to be had, or have they had difficulty having that conversation with a partner, saying, you know, I'm going to use this; it enhances my pleasure, or I need this to enhance my pleasure, or do you want to put it on for me to enhance my pleasure, or what is the conversation? It's a great conversation, and the answer is all of the above. So, in many cases, um, men are quite comfortable introducing the conversation, and their partner is quite overjoyed to say. He cares about my satisfaction and enjoyment. And probably in just as many conversations, if not more, there isn't a vocabulary to do it. So what these companies are doing is arming people with the vocabulary to have those conversations. And this is what I like. And this is what feels good. And this is how my body works. Those conversations still aren't easy for a lot of people. And they're still not natural for a lot of people. And the entrepreneurs creating companies that are appealing to you know, kids 13 to millennials to menopausal women, they're helping to reframe the conversation. So Mm -hmm. they're still hard, but it's getting better and we're making progress in a lot of areas. You know, it might surprise you to know that (laughs) of of the 19 19, um, states, I believe that's the right number, that require uh, sexual education, 19 to 22, some subset don't even require it to be sexually, factually, or medically accurate. Yeah, okay. I mean, if that doesn't fall into the category of why bother, I don't know what does. You know, it's interesting, and I, and I know that, you know, there was a woman in your book, and I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, who, who did workshops or, or retreats with women 
to look at their bodies because a lot of women they really Found don't know. Yeah, they don't know what it looks like down there. They right. really have no idea. They don't know what they go. Oh my god, I got that. Oh, you know, like really, it's it's quite amazing how how little you know you walk around with your own body and how little you know about it and what things are called. And right. I don't know if that's you know people women at my age. It's everybody. Sixties, fifties, forties, like. Unfortunately, it's everybody. There are a bunch of studies that I reference in the book where, you know, you show a picture of the female body and men and women can't point to the vulva or the vagina or even know that there's a difference. The other piece that you just referenced is there's a growing body of research that suggests if children are taught the right names, which is why I always say vagina or I always say vulva and I don't use any pet names. I try not to, although we did just say the JJpreneur. Um, there's evidence that suggests if they learn the right body parts, they understand a little bit about their anatomy or a lot about their anatomy and how the parts go together, they're more likely to report instances of violence or assault, which to me is as good a reason as any to teach people. If you feel like education, and there are people who feel this way, that education encourages people to have sex. I mean, that's not a concern that I have. I'm all about knowledge is power. Um, And the more you know, the better off you are. Uh, but we need to be arming children who then turn into adults to understand how to have this conversation, to how to, how to ask what they need, to understand what's going wrong or right with their body, not just in a pleasure situation, but also in a health situation. But just imagine, you know, I mean, I was one of the first people to, to bring condoms into high schools. And the conversation was, oh, you're trying to promote sex. Like, oh, they're already having sex. Look at the pregnancy records. They're right. already having sex. Let's stop it. Let's stop them from having babies. Let's stop them from getting, you know, any kind of uh, diseases that, that they might contract. At the same time, wouldn't it be great if young girls, not to promote sex, but if young girls were taught you know, about sexual pleasure, about being able to talk about what feels good to them instead of just say, oh yeah, you know, you can just do whatever you want because, oh, it was just, you know, I had him or I wanted to be loved or I wanted whatever. Instead of looking after their own pleasure, their own needs, their own whatever. We're not taught that. And that's why that conversation is so difficult to have. And one of the challenges that you just bring up is there's a woman in the book who's just a dynamo, Cindy Gallup, who started an organization called Make Love Not Porn, whose tagline is pro-porn, pro-sex, pro-knowing the difference, her, her company is founded on the premise that in the absence of sex education, combined with the ubiquity of porn, that's, what, that's how people are learning about sex. Right. Which isn't necessarily accurate, which isn't necessarily achievable, which isn't necessarily desirable. Now, it might be all of those things. Right. But if that's the only information you're getting, what we're seeing is when we're talking to kids about their sexual experience, they are doing things that they might not be comfortable with because that's what they see. And they don't know options. What they're seeing is just one subset of an enormous range of potential activities. And Cindy's focus is on this idea of socializing sex. Let's make it comfortable enough to talk about sex and to understand what, uh, what we enjoy sexually so that we're not defaulting to porn. Or that it's not only porn that's created by men, which by definition, in terms of what sells, yeah. you know, there's also evidence that says the more violent the scene is with, when it's a man and a woman, the more downloads there are. You know, if she looks like, like she's in pain, the more downloads they are. You know, and I just want to say anything's fair game between consenting adults. Um, but some, if this is your first experience... You know, maybe you want again a, a more nuanced view of what the possible. Well, absolutely. I mean, even even when I worked with gay men at you know at the Toronto Aid Society, they gave classes in safe fisting and safe you know sex. That was a little on the more violent side. They gave classes in it to show how to do it properly so you don't get hurt. So yeah, I mean, if that's if that's what you're seeing and that that's what you're 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 saying, oh, that's what I'm supposed to achieve. It's not realistic. I mean, you know, like you said, it's a porn industry. Half the girls are, you know, drugged up anyway and, and take it from that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that, that doesn't have to be the barometer. And the other part that you mentioned about not knowing your bodies, you know, if you're not spending time looking, there are a thousand different variations and there are a lot of businesses that are being built around 
you know, in my mind, an insecurity that somehow your vulva doesn't look the way it's supposed to look. That's the other thing. Like, what is going on with women having this surgery? Like, that just blows my mind that you are having surgery to make it look prettier. Yeah, and I, that suggests that there's some standard of beauty right. for a vagina or a vulva. And who's telling them it doesn't look pretty? <laughs> are they looking at it and going, it doesn't look pretty? Are they, you know, and what are they comparing it to? What, yeah. does, what does beauty look like? Or does some guy say, you know what, that, you had a baby or something like that. That doesn't look so hot anymore. Whatever, like who knows? I just can't even imagine that, that in the plastic surgery industry, like this is a big, big thing. Oh, it is. It's growing. It's yeah. a growing field and it's, there are plenty of people who do it. Um, there are plenty of people who do it well. There are plenty of women who are satisfied with the results, um, but there's something about it that is also another thing to make women feel that they have to fix. You know, one of the, going back to the conversations about male partners um, or female partners, one of the things that we heard over and over again from women is, I don't need to hear one more thing I need to fix. Yeah. No, I have to, I have to put on eye cream, thigh cream. Now I have to put something or use something or add something to be good at sex. That presentation doesn't work. And women don't want to be communicated with in this space. Like, as I said, they're doing another thing wrong. Guys, possibilities. activities. That's great. Yeah. And yeah, that's where the, 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 vaginoplasty and plastic surgeon for vagina conversations and for vulvas always takes me is, is there something else that we're supposed to feel as women that we don't have right? And it's against what standard? Only, only through history, you know, look look at the Japanese women, you have to bind their feet to look beautiful. Like we are this, this thing to be molded into somebody's view of of perfection and, and we just never get it right. I think we're getting a lot better um, as the, the conversation about gender expands and people who are in the conversation are helping educate others mm-hmm. who to give a much broader view of sort of the range of possibilities of how people feel, of how they identify, of how they express themselves sexually. So I do feel that we're making some progress. It's not always obvious if you watch the news, and it's not always obvious in certain parts of the country. Um, but we are making progress, and that's one of the fundamental themes that I that I like to mention that the book brings out is we're making progress. It's not linear. It's not a hockey stick. We're taking two steps forward and one step back, which at least means we're gaining a step every time. Are we there yet? Does Facebook let you advertise about many of these products? No. Are, are there more outlets where you can do it? A hundred percent. So I hear the word vagina. Let's go to Facebook for a moment. Say the word vagina. You can't, what can't you say on Facebook? There, it is very difficult to advertise anything and use the right body parts, feminine, uh, female body parts on Facebook. So certainly a number of companies in the book, regardless of what they were selling, um, can't advertise on Facebook. We couldn't advertise on Facebook and that's going back eight, 10 years ago. Recently, there's a company in San Francisco who got approval to advertise on bus kiosks um, about their product, which was a vibrator, but they weren't allowed to use the word vibrator. So when I say we're making some progress, yes, it's progress that she was able to get real estate, the founder of this company, on a bus station. But if it's not clear what it is we're talking about, have we really fixed the problem? So when, when we were trying to get our initial ads approved, even when we took out any word, sexual, sexuality, arousal, when we made it so vanilla that you didn't even know if we were selling paper towels or, or potato chips, we still couldn't get the ads approved. I find it just so bizarre. And there are companies I've put together sort of a history over the past yeah. eight or 10 years of all the times companies have faced this, um, female health companies specifically. There's a company... Um, by the name of Unbound, the entrepreneur is this dynamo named Polly Rodriguez, and she had wanted to get the ads for her company in the MTA, which is the New Jersey, no, I'm sorry, the New York uh, Tri-State Transit Authority. And it wasn't until there was a huge public outcry that she wasn't allowed to be there did the MTA respond. And this is already while they have ads in those same locations for products for male 
enjoyment and for the Museum of Sex. So we are making progress where our, our shouts are now going to the right people and progress is being made. So I don't want to minimize that, yeah, but it's no. still not as easy as it should be. Uh, it just, know, it really blows people my mind. are in these products. Yeah. I used yeah. to joke when I would speak about um, Zestra, it was like, we felt like we were at a, a hoot concert. We were being trampled. You know, if we had samples, we couldn't, Look I up. mean, we couldn't, talk enough people are dying to have this conversation and luckily now there are a lot more outlets and communities and websites and communities built around brands so people are having these conversations was there an area of the of the country that that bought bought this that really surprised you uh i was surprised at first until we started to look at it so as you might imagine in many companies um the places where you see big bumps in these kind of categories are the Northeast, Chicago, sure. Northern and Southern Major California, City. but also the Bible Belt. And at least our hypothesis was that for the product we were selling, which was a, the positioning was for people in committed relationships who had noticed a change, who were 35 plus, it made sense that this was something that might improve a relationship. So it might be an investment you would make in a longer term relationship. I remember going to meetings and still go to, you know, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which is, you know, one of the leading industry meetings in the obstetrical community. And so many of the women who came to speak with me were from the Middle East, dressed in very traditional dress. Nice. Um, so everybody, when you scratch the surface, appears to be interested in this. How front and center they want to be about it might be different, which is why the fact that these products are now available direct to consumer, in the privacy in your, of your own home, in subtle packaging, if that's the way you want it, so your neighbors and your postman or post, postal delivery person or the UPS delivery person doesn't know what you're doing, there's absolutely always been an interest. Um, there are still some people who perfectly legitimately want to keep the conversation private. I'm only glad that we're now making other options available for people who need to, who are out there seeking information and wanting to be part of the conversation. Did, did Frankie and Grace help at all? <laughs> I, do, I do think it is helping. I mean, it is now a much more common reference that people make. And every time someone hears what I do, they say, have you watched Frankie and Grace? There was nothing to refer to. There was no right. TV show where someone could say, wow, they're talking about menopausal women and vaginal dryness. So Absolutely. Anything that gets into the public. Not just that, is that, you know, you have osteoarthritis and your hand doesn't work. And so you need something that's more flexible and lighter and easier, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, you know, and some of the brilliant well engineers behind these companies take that into account. They're yeah. not saying all women are created equally. All women have the same flexibility. There are lots of people focused on providing options for people in the, in, in certain parts of the disabled community yeah. to say one size does not fit all. Right. We did some research where, you know, you ask a hundred men how they would describe sexual satisfaction and they, a hundred said orgasm. If you ask a hundred women, which we did, you get 110 different answers for a few reasons. One, the same thing doesn't feel good to everybody. Two, a third of women have never experienced an orgasm. And three, if it's not possible or it doesn't happen, there are other aspects that she might enjoy. Right. And so the conversation and the range of experiences is also incredibly broad, but I'm for anything that makes a comfortable, respectful conversation about sex and people can opt in to whether or not they want to listen or be part of the conversation. This, none of this is being forced on people. These no, are all no. choices. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's good to have choices, Rachel. It's 100%. Choices. Absolutely. And, you know, sex is a real integral part of a relationship, of a healthy relationship. And so, you know, it's important for, for people to look at, at that and go, you know, if it's not working, how, how can we make it work? And if they have products like you're offering, um, it's just some, you know, something else in the arsenal that, that can make your life better. And I love the way, of, of the, the way you phrased it, because when I got into this business, my kids were young and I needed to explain what I did in a way that I thought was age appropriate. And the language that I chose was very similar to what you just said, that when people are in a relationship, and I have to admit when they were young, I said when people are married and they're in a relationship, mm -hmm. sex is an important part of their relationship. And if they want it to be better, 
there are ways to do that. You know, they weren't running to say, mommy, please tell me more. But that's at least how we started the conversation. This is important. There's also a lot of research that says legitimately an active, engaging, satisfying sex life is good for your health. It's good for your heart. It's good for your cardiovascular system. You live longer and look better. I mean, if someone said you look better and live longer from having sex, if we shouted that from the rooftops, that might make an impact in terms of our comfort level talking about it and engaging in a range of activities. Yeah. And and just even having this conversation about female arousal and, and this cream helping them, you know, might make a man think about, oh, what else can I do to help this arousal? What else can I, what haven't I been doing? Help. <laughs> <laughs> Many of these products, interestingly, exactly. that I work with, about 25% of the purchases are made by men. Okay. So good for them. You know, it's a, it's a one data point, but I do think it's interesting whether that means they're interested in experimenting, whether their partner has expressed something, whether they're trying to show additional attention. And this is for any combination of partners. Uh, you know, I think that's great. You know, talking about pills and things, the little blue pill. I mean, I did have a, I have a friend who, whose husband took it and, you know, the four hour was just getting too much. Like, come on, like, let's get rid of this thing already. And, and she did have to call the doctor and they did have to, you know, look at this and, and no woman wants a four hour session. I literally, it's like a waste. It's like a waste. (laughs) Every time I speak to an audience where I think it's appropriate. Yeah. um, I start with, I want to show how many men or women or people who identify with another gender, how many people are actually looking for a partner with a four-hour four hour erection? Like, so when has that become a desirable benefit? Yeah. We have enough research that talks about Come women's on. patterns anyway to suggest that in his mind it might mean that's multiple occasions. That's not what it means um, yeah. by and large to her. So I, I love that because I'm not sure anybody wants that. Yeah. But the companies who talk about that were brilliant. It tapped into an insight in men that that's something I want. That's manly. And oh, by the way, it was meant to be, and it is a side effect. But yes. they turned a side effect into one of the most memorable benefit. benefits <laughs> that anyone's ever talked about for any product that I'm aware of um, over the course of consumer product history or pharmaceutical history. I mean, I think they're happy if they got 15 minutes out of it, really. <laughs> It's up. Yay. <laughs> Way to go, man. Yeah. You know? Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. If we wanted that, uh, that'd be great. But you know, we're, I can just see women going, okay, the kids, I got to do the kids. I got to get dinner. I got lunch. I got, uh, let's get out of here now. Okay. It's done. I've had my orgasm. Let's go. <laughs> well, it's, it's important that you point that out. One of the challenges with talking about female health is it's so different, so different than male sexual response. So male sexual response works like a hydraulic pump. You increase the blood flow, the pump works, the brain is connected to the genitals, and the person is ready for action. For women, it's a much more complex interplay of systems. It's physiological, it's sociological, it's psychological, it's contextual, it's behavioral. So there's really no one-hit wonder that can act on all these systems involved. And one of the things that we've seen with some of the products that I've worked with and some of the ones that are in the book is that if you're able to create an immediate physical reaction, that often is enough to get her brain kicked in. Mm -hmm. But if you wait for the moment, to use your analogy, when the kids are set, the homework is done, I have nothing in my to-do list, my email box is empty, the laundry's done, you know, I've done food shopping. When you wait for that moment, if you wait for that moment, no one's ever having sex. I don't know a person who's gotten to that moment where every aspect of their life is under control. So if you need a little help getting out of your brain and into your body, products that create an immediate reaction that enable then your brain to kick in are quite helpful for women. I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. That's awesome. So we have... What other, I'm curious, what other products are, you know, let's tell the folks what other products are out there. You've got the female arousal cream, you know, it, it brings blood flow to the area and, and tingly and 
feel that, yeah, okay, I'm feeling something here. This feels kind of good. What, what, what else is out there for, for women? So there are a lot of lubricants um, which are now being made with better different ingredients. So one of the companies in the book, Good Clean Love, the founder, Wendy, um, found that she was having a reaction to the many chemicals that are in sure. consumer products. So not only are there new categories that there are better products or different products or products that don't have the things that people might react to uh, in their products. There are, as I talked about, devices that not only strengthen the pelvic floor, but could reduce incontinence symptoms. Yeah, that's Especially awesome. the conversation for incontinence has been around how many pads did you need? How many leaks did you have? Now that there are a couple of women launching companies in this space, the conversation is, how can we improve the symptoms so that you have a better sexual experience? No one was talking about that before. That's a tran in my mind, in my world, in my brain, that's a transformational improvement. And we're going from counting leaks and pads to reducing symptoms and ultimately measuring whether that has an impact on our sexual satisfaction. Or can you laugh? Those are heroes. I mean, you talk about a, a... uh, an intergalactic change that yeah. that's huge yeah. um, in that space. Yeah. <clears throat> As I mentioned, there are a number of products that are direct to consumer distribution of any combination of condoms that are made from different materials, organic, a hundred percent tampons and with AI and data behind them to say, this is what you need. I'm looking at your patterns and every three weeks, this appears to be what you need. And there are better um, products to measure when you're ovulating. And there are apps that collect all your data so that you can start to see patterns and maybe change your behavior. Um, Many of these have been helpful in extending the fertility window that women experience. And I don't mean by years. I mean by the number of days in the month that you actually are fertile. So they're getting positive results with people trying to get pregnant who want to be pregnant in a shorter period of time. I mean, you name a body part and there are companies or a female response, there are companies working to make this better. That, the, um, the billboard that you talked about, that was the, that, the, that lady got, uh, that doesn't mention um, what the it is. The name of the company is Lioness, by the way. Yeah, Lioness, that's right. And, but it, it measures data. So what data is that? Is that it's, it's a vibrator that measures data. Is that the, what it is? And yes, and a lot of the devices do. It could see, say, you know, what were the conditions under which you achieved orgasm? How long did it take you? What was the increase in blood flow? It can give you information about what's happening in your body if you want it. Yeah, so that yeah. you can create potentially a more fruitful environment to, for you to have a positive experience. That's great. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Wow. One of the um, points that I wanted to make sure that we understood is these are big businesses. Oh, yeah. You know, 43% of women, they have the potential to be huge businesses. 43% of women at some point in their lives have sexual concerns and difficulties. I already talked about how limited the sex education is. One third of women will have incontinence symptoms at some point in their life. One third of women have never experienced an orgasm. These aren't small problems and these aren't small business ideas. These are huge opportunities. And I'm delighted with each passing day that there's more and more awareness of how big these opportunities are from an investment standpoint, from a, you know, any kind of alternative funding standpoint, and from the public conversation that we're having. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. I'm always happy to bring it into the open. I mean, I used to have a sex show on mainstream terrestrial radio. And it was a lot of fun. And, you know, it's always fun to get the callers. And, and I know in your book, you mentioned a few people that ask some, some really funny things. <laughs> Questions, you go, really? Are you serious? But you know what? That's just lack of knowledge. It's just right. lack of knowledge. And, and we can't make fun of people for that. Um, because, hey, they want to take sex ed out of the schools again. Right? So, you know, hopefully we can put it in and we can put it in such a way that, that our children really know about it. And I imagine your children are ambassadors for good sex now. Wow. <laughs> yeah. They, they mostly, I never, I, I, we made a deal that I will never use their first names. No. Nope. In any public setting. But yes, I mean, I think 
that when your mother starts doing this, I mean, there's so many funny stories where people will sort of accost me in the middle of a mom child moment when the kids were little and ask me detailed questions about their sexual health needs or their vaginal dryness. And I would say, listen, kids have ears. I'm happy <laughs> to talk to you whenever you want. And if you want to talk about this in front of your kids, that's your prerogative. I don't want to talk about your sexual needs in front of my kids. Right. And even as open as I am, yeah. I want to set I wanted to set boundaries and I want to create the environments in which the conversations would take place. And, you know, I'm relentless about it. And uh, I don't know if they would call themselves ambassadors, but it's certainly not for my lack of effort. <laughs> I know my son used to come to me and he'd go, Ma, what's the best condom? Ma, what's the best? You know, my friends all want to know. And I think, yeah, you not know, so much. I don't get that. <laughs> it wasn't, well, they're older now. They're in their 30s. But it was like a really, I was so happy to at least know that they were talking about condoms. They were in high school. Thank God you're talking about these. Absolutely. You, you know, I'm very proud of them. So, yeah. <laughs> and you look young to have 30-year-old kids. Oh, uh, no. Thank you. Well, Thank from you. my vantage point, you look pretty young. Thank you. Um, Rachel, tell people how they get in touch with you if they need to get in touch with you. Tell them, your book is on Amazon, of course, uh, Orgasmic Leadership. Really fun read. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So go to Amazon. It's Orgasmic Leadership. Go to iTunes. Go to Barnes & Noble. Google Orgasmic Leadership. Uh, put my name in. Put Vagipreneur. Email me at rbsherl, S-C-H-E-R-L, at Spark Solutions for Growth. I always love hearing from people. I always love answering questions. This, I hope it came through. This is something I'm passionate about on a professional and personal level and really am delighted to, in some small way, be part of this very important conversation and market development. It was huge. Thank you so much for being a vagipreneur. I'm thank sure you. And say thank you for... Uh, doing this 20 years ago, if not more. <laughs> I love talking with you. Thanks, Rachel.